Hello and welcome to Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning, a higher education podcast from the Center for Teaching and Learning at Columbia. I'm Katherine Ross, the Center's Executive Director. Let's get started. I'm speaking remotely today with Drs. Aubrey Swansain and Yoni Amiel. Dr. Aubrey Swansain is the Director of the Center for Education Research and Evaluation at Columbia University Vagilis College of Physicians and Surgeons. She is an Assistant Professor of Educational Assessment in Dental Medicine and Pediatrics at Columbia University Medical Center and is an Educational Psychologist by training. Dr. Jonathan Amiel, also known as Yoni, is an Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center, Senior Associate Dean for Curricular Affairs, and Interim Co-Vice Dean for Education at Columbia University Vagilis College of Physicians and Surgeons. He is also an attending psychiatrist at the New York State Psychiatric Institute and New York Presbyterian Hospital. Welcome, Yoni and Aubrey. I really am happy to have you here today in our Dead Ideas podcast. Thank you. Before we get started, just a quick reminder for our listeners. In this podcast series, we are exploring dead ideas in teaching and learning. In other words, ideas that are widely believed, though not true, and that drive many systems and behaviors in connection to teaching, exercising what Diane Pike called the tyranny of dead ideas. Let me set the stage a bit for all of you listening to us today. A few years ago, the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University made some pretty major changes to how curriculum and assessment are structured for the medical students. These changes pushed against some pretty major dead ideas. Some dead ideas like that grades somehow motivate learning or that you can't trust students not to cheat, or that high stakes testing is really the only way or the best way to assess learning in the medical school context. The reason I wanted to talk with Yoni and Aubrey today is to explore how they pushed against some of these dead ideas in the changes that they've made since 2007. I will let them walk you through some of these changes so I won't detail them here for you. So here we are in 2020 now, um, and I'm wondering with all the changes that you've made, what do you think is the purpose of assessment? Clearly, it is a dead idea that the purpose of assessment is simply to rank and sort students. Um, Obviously, you've moved past that. So what would you say is the purpose of assessment now in the medical school? Thanks so much, Catherine. And, you know, this is a place where I'd say that we're, we're in conflict. In, in some ways, um, the, the idea that assessment is to rank and sort students is a dead idea. In some ways, it's kind of a zombie, a dead idea that keeps on walking around. Um, and I would say that in different parts of our curriculum, um, that idea is, um, has been put to rest. And in other idea, parts of our curriculum, it is still walking around. You know, the, when, when I think about it, um, especially early in our curriculum in the first year and a half, which is the more classroom-based portion, what we've tried to do is really embrace the idea that we're 
um, we're educating professionals and that rather than assessment telling us how much someone knows or doesn't know, um, we, we ought to be focusing on what they can or can't do and whether they're ready for the role they're going to be serving in their next stage of training. Uh, and in order to do that, one really has to shift their thinking about how to build a competency-based framework for education. And in medical education, this is really informed by some of our Canadian colleagues. Um, the, the idea behind competency-based medical education is first you look at the outcomes, right? What are you trying to accomplish? And then in an orderly way, you sequence competencies throughout your curriculum. You try to ensure that learning experiences are aligned to those competencies, that the teaching is tailored to those competencies, and then that you assess in a programmatic way uh, that can give you coherent data about where learners are and when they may be ready to advance into the next stage. I would say that those are the ideal components and we strive for the ideal, but we're not quite there. That's, that's really interesting. I love the zombie idea. That's, that's another great metaphor. That's a metaphor that was coined by Jason Frank, who is one of our colleagues from Canada as well. <laughs> that's great. We thank him for that. Um, so I'm wondering, I know one of the other big changes that was made pretty early on um, was a change to pass-fail grading. Was there some a uh, dead idea about grading or zombie idea about grading that you were going after with that. And it's related, I guess, also to your competency-based um, curriculum. Yeah, so I think a lot of this relates to the idea that, um, A, the educational program should be based around helping people to advance rather than ranking and sorting them. Uh, and B, that the the process of learning is a social process uh, and how one learns, how one becomes a professional um, may be as important as what one learns and what they, are, uh, what they know, what they're able to, to do. And I think a lot about um, you know, stories we heard from actually from some of our alums, um, from uh, a couple named uh, Dick and Sylvia Cruz. And Early in their career, um, what they were focusing on um, in medical education was really trying to take a look at professionalism and what it means for a student to be professional and, and really what it means for a student to be unprofessional. And they were in a somewhat concrete way, and even they'll say that it was somewhat concrete, um, thinking about you know, what are the behaviors that are necessary for the profession? So does someone have integrity? Does someone, is someone reliable? Um, and what does it mean when there are lapses in their professionalism? Over time, as they were thinking about these aspects of professionalism and realizing that they really occur in a social or ecological model, they grew to, to thinking about this more as a process and they called the, the process professional identity formation. And that um, that model really takes us through uh, learning in which one internalizes professional attributes through a series of conflicts and negotiations. Right? So when you come into medical school, you're not a physician yet, but you're learning with physicians and you're seeing what they value, what they see as important and meaningful in the identity of a doctor and then comparing it with your pre-physicianly identity. And sometimes those align really well and other times it, it's kind of hard, 
right? Uh, the, the medical school isn't like college. It's, it's different. And one expects the way that you, um, that you complete assignments to echo in some ways how you're going to be responsible to your patients. That's really, really different from college. And so through a series of um, successes and through a series of failures, one takes in that identity. Um, and how does that relate to grading? When we think about the, the conflicts that we actually line up in an educational program, they facilitate these kinds of conflicts, right? There's a lot to do in medical school, to, a lot of facts to learn, a lot of skills to develop, a lot of collaboration that one needs to be able to manage and maintain. Um, and rather than at each point telling a learner, you know, you, you achieved 92% of what you were, were supposed to, um, really helping them reflect on what they were able to do well, what they, they had a hard time with, and how they can grow from that can really help us to prepare them for life in, in the workplace and to take on more responsibility over time. Wow, that's really powerful stuff. Aubrey, I know in your role, you have taken these um, ideas and you you're the one who's really sort of developed how then you promote learning through the assessment um, with the medical students. So I was wondering if you could walk us through some of the things you've done to promote learning. Sure. So when I started working at the medical school, one of my roles was um, as, uh, as a medical education learning specialist. And one thing that I would do is I would meet with students who struggled on exams or didn't feel confident in their ability to demonstrate this, this knowledge and this competence. And, um, you know, the students worked really hard at studying and learning, but, you know, sometimes they weren't successful. And so I started to think, well, I, I tried to help the students to think about what they could do to improve their studying and learning strategies, not just for short-term exam performance, but also for to be prepared for long-term performance in the clinical setting and on future board exams that medical students take. Um, but I also started to think about the assessment system and how it was structured to support or not support this long-term student learning. Um, so over the years, we've made a number of adjustments to the assessment system, again, to promote learning. Um, as, as Yoni mentioned, one of the important values to us is professional identity formation. So one of our early steps was after implementing an honor code, we began allowing students to take exams unproctored and then off-site. Um, which we would we we hoped could help to give them the trustworthiness feeling to be prepared uh, to do this in the future. Um, and then we also started because of that flexibility, they're taking exams offsite and such. We started to create things like assessment weeks where we scheduled all of their exams during a given week. Um, because in the past we were finding that students again were you know, focused on short-term exam performance. They would perhaps cram for an exam in one course, but then ignore or de-emphasize what was going on in the other course while they were preparing for an exam. 
So we we situated all of the exams in one week um, to help them, you know, to focus on studying when they needed to study. We also, um, you know, decided to let students retake exams. So if they didn't meet a minimum threshold of getting 70% of the questions correct, we let them retake the exam that following weekend where they could, um, you know, have to write why the right answer was right to each question. But that way we wanted them to be able to demonstrate this performance right away and to learn from their errors right away so that they would then be prepared for the next block of information. Um, we also created problem sets that the students did weekly in between these assessment weeks such that the students could you know, not cram that so that they could think about questions as they went along and to learn from those more formative um, problem sets to be more prepared for the, the tests during the assessment week. Um, and we also instituted post-exam review sessions. It's really important to us that students review their exams and learn where they had errors so that they can correct those before they move on to their next section. So those were some of the ideas put into practice to change the assessment system. Wow, that's great, Aubrey. Thank you. It sounds like you uh, also managed to push back against some dead ideas that students had. Mm -hmm. And what a radical idea to allow your students to take exams off-site unproctored, uh, relying on an honor code. So I want to um, pivot us a little bit um, to talk about uh, the article that you both were recently part of um, publishing. Uh, the article is titled 12 Tips for Embedding Assessment for and as Learning Practices in a Programmatic Assessment System. This is really a great resource for anyone who wants to know how to carry out assessment that is evidence-based, learning-focused, and student-centered. And to my delight, it pushes back on a whole lot of dead ideas, some of which we've mentioned already, um, about assessment and the role of assessment in learning. In the beginning of your article, you state that uh, a programmatic assessment system is one in which each individual assessment should be viewed as part of a larger system in which the assessments are viewed holistically to make high stakes competence promotion decisions. Could you expand on this a little bit, maybe give some examples of this, how this works in your program? Absolutely. So, you know, the, the, I think the easiest way to understand this within our curriculum is that though we have, um, you know, courses and each course might have different sections, we really think about progression as moving from one phase of a curriculum where one has a particular kind of set of responsibilities into the next. So our initial phase we call fundamentals is uh, largely classroom and simulation center based with some clinical skills. But in that phase of the curriculum, students don't have direct patient care responsibilities. The next phase is the major clinical year, and that's one where students are taking on clinical responsibilities of patients in the hospital and outpatient settings with very direct supervision. And then the last phase is differentiation and integration, where students are senior uh, students on teams and are taking on more responsibility and, and really preparing for their residencies and, and beyond. And so when we think about programmatic assessment in a medical education setting, at least in, in medical school, 
we think about the uh, kind of data that we collect over time um, as a gradient, right? And so there can be quizzes and assignments that are very low stakes. There can be exams that are somewhat higher stakes, right? You need to, to pass an exam early in the curriculum in order to, uh, to pass a course, um, but if you need to, you can retake it, et cetera. But the decision about progressing to the next stage of training, that's the high stakes summative decision. And in order to make that high stakes summative decision, uh, the progression committee will look at somebody's performance on a series of exams and quizzes. And actually what they'll do is look at different modes of performance. So not just whether someone has mastered a set of knowledge, but how did they, how did they do in their clinical skills assessment in uh, objective structured clinical exams and try to integrate a view of whether a learner is ready to advance or whether a learner needs a little bit more time and a little bit more enrichment in order to take on the responsibilities and be successful in the next phase. Uh, Aubrey, did you have anything you wanted to add to that or? Um, well, as part of this rollout that I'd mentioned before, one of the um, additional features was to add in cumulative progress exams in order to support students to move in this direction and to move toward what it would ultimately need to be a high stakes decision made before their progression to the next stage of the curriculum. And so we, after each semester, give the students, again, it's, it's a low stakes progress exam so that they can practice answering questions. They can see um, which areas they, you know, may have forgotten more so than others over time. They can assess their studying and learning strategies to see if they are paying off for, for long-term learning. Um, so I think that that's been one thing that we've done to support this sort of programmatic assessment structure that we have. And we're also working to add uh, questions on exams that come from previous topics that students have learned. Um, so that they don't necessarily go a year and a half or so without seeing questions on on content that they learned about in the first semester of medical school. So I think those are some of the um, changes that we've made to support this structure for long-term learning. It's really quite impressive how for every structural change you've made, you've also built in support for the students to adapt to those structural changes. I, I just want to compliment you on that. I, that is a rare occurrence, I think, in higher ed broadly. Um, and I think that sort of leads me into the next question I wanted to ask you about the article. Um, you know, you, had, you have so many good ideas in here, and we won't have time to go into all of them. But I did notice that a lot of the ideas you have in there are, are grounded in this sense that assessment should have impacts on the students in a couple different ways. Um, assessment should be empowering the students as learners. They should be educating students about how learning happens and also motivating them to keep going, to retake exams if they need to, so those sort of three things come out in a lot of the ideas and techniques that you shared in the article. So, so I just wondered what kind of impacts you have seen actually now that you've gone through a couple years with this robust 
assessment system. Um, can you describe some of the changes you've seen in your students and the impacts on the students? I can I can talk about a couple of things. Um, one, um, you know, I think we've been convinced by the idea, and, and Aubrey has had such a, a big leadership role on this. But we've been, and, and Boyd Richards, who was with us uh, before, before Aubrey, but we've been really convinced by the idea that an assessment system is a direct communication of an institution's values to students. And so, we whether you're intentionally teaching students uh, about your values or unintentionally teaching them, your assessment system does convey what they are. Right. And so especially in the pre-clerkship part of the curriculum, as we're you know, trying to notice how students are responding to a very different form of assessment than they're used to. Right. Most of these are not not most of them. Almost all of them are pre-meds who have been actually quite focused on their GPAs and their MCAT scores and, and all of that um, coming into a system where that matters less in, in our pre-clerkship uh, part of the curriculum can be a little bit confusing. Um, and what do we see? We see students actually seeking a lot more self-assessment resources. So um, asking for, um, for practice problem sets so that they can monitor their own, uh, their own growth and preparations for uh, more formal assessments. We're seeing in our simulation centers, students asking for more feedback, more experiences in practicing their clinical skills. And actually, when they're receiving feedback in a formative setting, really treasuring that, right? So if someone, uh, if, if a preceptor is observing a student doing a cardiac exam and say, says, so your stethoscope should be a couple of inches over if you want to hear that, that murmur or that part of the, the heartbeat, that's a great piece of feedback. It's really actionable. It's there to help improve the student's performance. Uh, and it's trusted right? because it's based on direct experience. So we're seeing students really engaging in a lot more feedback seeking behavior. And, and that's been something very valuable. Obviously, you know, as we have been transitioning more and more in this direction, a lot of people, a lot of faculty, maybe some who, who have held on to more of these dead or zombie ideas have been worried. Aren't we just promoting cheating and students will uh, do what they need to do in, in order to get um, a score on, on the exam and, and just pass. And, you know, Aubrey can comment on this a little bit more, but we know that if we've set up the, the progression system, right, that there's a lot of, uh, of uh, intrinsic value to learning what one needs to learn so one can do what they need to do. And so, we, we don't need to artificially increase stress over that because the teaching is really aligned to, to practice. In some ways in medicine, we have some external stressors as well. We have external stressors related to standardized testing that is important in applying for the next phase of, uh, of training. We have some stresses, which maybe we'll get to later about, um, about assessment later in the curriculum and grading that matters for residency program directors. And that's really challenging, but especially early on, uh, focusing on that intrinsic uh, motivation for learning is really powerful. I would, I would agree that, that our goals have been to help students to learn to focus on having a growth mindset 
And we also want students who can be self-directed learners. We don't want an assessment system that just incentivizes short-term memorization and fact recall. We want students to learn how to engage in clinical reasoning and learn how to learn how to find um, information resources that are going to help them to learn um, in the clinical setting. And we also want them to think more about you know, you don't necessarily have to always know the right answer off the top of your head. It's okay and probably safer to look up information that should be that should be referenced. Um, you know, just for patient safety purposes as well. So I think those are some of the other um, values that we've been trying to promote with this system. Well, I think um, the other sort of major theme I noticed uh, in your article is that the larger cultural changes that support the student learning efforts should promote, this is a quote, should promote learning by adopting a competency-based education and evaluation structure and a culture of valuing learning over performance. And I think that's sort of what you were just addressing, Aubrey, right? That it's the culture, and, and also, Yoni, you were mentioning as well, there are these additional stressors that are external to the culture, but the culture you've created for these early years really is the valuing of learning over assessment, which it sounds like really did empower your students as learners and, and help them know how to learn and to ask for the things they need to learn. So the, that's great. What a success that is for you. Well, Catherine, I, I think we're, we're constantly striving towards that. But, you know, uh, obviously, as we look at um, our learners' experience in this um, uh, curriculum, in this assessment system, we're also aware that learners are coming in with, um, with different, uh, different educational experiences, a different amount of uh, enrichment and external resources in their lives. So I think that part of the, the discussion, part of the, the real need for educational culture change here is to think about uh, equity in the educational environment too, so that we don't simply reward those who have more, uh, more resources in their lives, but rather use our educational resources to help make sure that everybody is getting to where they need to so that they can become you know, wonderful, fabulous doctors. I love that, Yoni. That's really powerful. And I think higher ed could take note. Uh, grading often simply perpetuates situations and why we don't always go with the assumption that our students are here to learn and that they are capable of learning. And that should be our primary focus is beyond me, I guess, because these are zombie <laughs> things that keep wandering around. Um, so I appreciate you unpacking that for us. In the conclusion of your paper, um, you talked about the culture change that was required for everyone, right? For administrators, faculty, students, um, in order to view assessment as a learning tool. Um, 
And I know you've mentioned already a few of the things, the zombie and dead ideas you've confronted. Were there any or any one or any couple that you found were really the toughest to confront? And how did you, how did you work through those challenges? Well, I, I would yeah. be very clear, especially um, for our learners who may listen or our colleagues who may listen, that we are continuing to confront them, right? So we have... Um, you know, a learning system that's really oriented around these principles before students go into their clerkship year. But in their clerkship year, um, we actually still uh, assess in ways that grade students and that uh, have different incentives for performance. And I think that we're struggling with that internally uh, to try to, um, to reconcile some of the inconsistencies between uh, learning theory and some of the external pressures uh, around what a student record ought to look like in order to make sure that our learners can be successful down the line and be uh, have their strengths really uh, recognized and valued by their future teachers. I, I know that um, that in the undergraduate environment, educators are struggling with that too, uh, wanting to make sure that they can recognize you know high degrees of uh, of excellence or achievement and and trying to make sure that those assessments are valid and and i think it's tough and i think that as a community of educators um, we are all continually coming back to this question and trying to understand um, how do we satisfy our competing goals uh, and reconcile them with one another especially when they conflict and I don't have an easy answer for that one, unfortunately. Aubrey, you were on the front lines of a lot of this as well. Do you have some thoughts or wisdom you could share with us? I think I would say from a student standpoint, it's been probably, it's a dead idea, maybe it's a dead idea um, that they haven't realized yet as a dead idea that they have to, you know, get every single question right on an exam. And, and some students may put kind of some self-value on that sort of performance. And so again, it's, we've worked consistently with the students to help them to appreciate it's much more important than not just how you do on a one-off exam, but that you can actually retain and, and utilize this information in the future and in the clinical setting. So again, trying to emphasize that growth mindset versus having a performance mindset with the students has been, you know, a work in progress. And, and there's always a new group, new group of students every year who are conditioned to try to get the highest score on the MCAT to get into medical school and that sort of thing. So, so working with the students consistently on the same messaging um, is, has been very important. I would also want to give um, Aubrey and her team in the Center for Education Research and Evaluation um, just huge recognition for what they've done in terms of educational data warehousing. Um, these, these conversations and these tough discussions with faculty and with students get much easier or at least more direct when based in data. And so uh, easing some concerns about whether a transition in education uh, theory and educational practice um, might unintentionally um, harm the learning environment or whatnot uh, can only be done by demonstrating in a data-driven way um, that the outcomes are as good or better than, than they had been under a former system. Yeah, 
And, and Aubrey has been such a leader in that. And I think that speaks very directly to allowing students to take unproctored exams. I know that you do have data on student performance over many years, and you're able to demonstrate that trusting students as learners has not impaired any performance or incentivized any cheating, and that the performance on whole has improved, especially for longer-term retention. Did I get that right, Aubrey? I think that it has been what we've demonstrated with our internal data so far. Um, you know, students, there are, our exam performance did not change much once we instituted the um, remote proctoring, the, the, the scores didn't shoot up or plummet. They, were, they stayed about the same. When we instituted the assessment weeks, um, the mean scores improved a little bit. And notably, the, um, the rate of students failing exams dropped substantially. And so I think because of the problem sets and maybe the lack of a lot of pressure to perform as well as they possibly could on getting every question right, help them to focus on the core material and to perform well on the exam. Um, and then we've also seen in the student board exam scores in at least one class of students that have gone on to take their boards since implementing our assessment weeks that that that, that class did quite a bit better than previous classes on their boards, um, which which we cannot explain using, you know, diff that they had different M MCAT scores or, any or anything different coming into medical school it does look like between the assessment weeks and having progress exams and more cumulative questions and the support that we've been providing students that they that they're doing well on their boards. So that that's what our data have shown so far. Well, thank you. I think you've given people quite a bit to think about. Um, but as we wrap up this conversation, I'm just wondering um, if you have any other things you'd like to share with us, any next steps or challenges you see coming up in your future. As Yoni mentioned, we're, we're always iterating. We're always trying to improve. We're in the process right now of developing a new curriculum for our preclinical fundamentals phase of the curriculum. And we want students to be able to learn in a more active and integrated manner. And so we would like to see our assessments, you know, become more integrated. So it's not just a genetics assessment, not just a pharmacology assessment, but to have the, the assessments, you know, over, overlap in content areas and again, be more cumulative. Um, we're also interested in expanding the use of other assessment types, not beyond, say, multiple choice questions to assess knowledge, expanding into maybe some essay questions and and utilizing more, um, you know, more competency-based assessments in, the, in terms of their clinical performance. Those sound like really great directions to be moving in. I really like this, the um, push for integrative learning that that is so helpful for students, I think, at every level, undergrad, ungrad. So I'll be anxious to hear how that how that goes and how it works out. I'm sure you'll have some great ideas to share with all of us as you work through that. So Yoni and Aubrey, thank you so much for taking time to come in and chat with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. 
Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website where you can find any resources mentioned in the episode, ctl.columbia.edu backslash podcast. Please like us, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning is a product of Columbia University Center for Teaching and Learning and is produced by Stephanie Ogden, Laura Nicholas, A.B. Seidel, and John Hanford. Production support from Kate Ty Piggott. Our theme music is In the Lab by Immersive Music.